You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I talk with Kristen Miller. Kristen is the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University. His research is primarily in ethics and philosophy of religion. He has written for Forbes, New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. And his books include The Character Gap, Moral Psychology, Moral Character and Empirical Theory, and Character and Moral Psychology. In this episode, we talk about honesty, how we might not be as good as we think we are, the writing practice, and so much more. Hello, Christian, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's really an honor. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. So how did you get interested in philosophy? Well, it's a long story. I'll give you the, the short version. Uh, otherwise, we might not, might not talk about anything else. But um, the, the short version is it, it was through religion, actually. Um, I was raised kind of nominally religious. Uh, but I started in high school getting into more just thinking of it myself. You know, does God exist? What is the purpose of all this? Is there an afterlife? And wrestling with those questions. And those took me to authors who introduced me to the world of philosophy. Um, uh, they, they were uh, grappling with, with these questions in a new way I'd never seen before, giving these logical arguments either for or against and uh, pre- presenting you know, step-by-step reasoning with premises. And uh, I was just really enamored and hooked with all that. Uh, so I, for a couple of years, I was just reading a lot on my own, kind of wherever the, the spirit moved me, so to speak, um, without much direction. But then uh, a key moment happened in my senior year of high school where I ran out of classes to take at my high school. So I went over to a local college and there I said, well, let's, let's give philosophy a try. So I took introduction to philosophy with a professor whose name is Dr. Bible. Um, <laughs> really? I'm not making it up. Yep. It's, this is true. This is, it kind of all fits together. Um, so, so he, he, uh, he, he introduced me to introduction to philosophy. Absolutely loved it. Took two more classes with him. Uh, my senior year in high school, went off to college, uh, was, Checking out biology did, didn't last very long. Checked out chemistry that didn't last very long. And by sophomore year, I declared philosophy, and I never looked back. Went right to graduate school after college, and here I am, uh, twelve years as a professor. So, so you know, you've been doing work on on, on character um, and yep. some some virtues of character, and I want to I want to talk about both of those things today in our conversation. So, if we're going to do that, I think it's first important for us to start off talking about what is character. So, so how would you describe character? You must be a philosopher. You're, 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 <laughs> you're, you're starting where a philosopher would always start, right? Um, defining our terms and getting clear what we're talking about. Um, so I'm not talking about things like characters on the stage or characters in novels. Um, so what I have in mind is character understood as a feature of our psychology. And it comes in different kinds. There's moral character. There's more intellectual character, there's artistic character, there's athletic character. I really, in my own research, have focused in specifically on the moral side, so moral character. And I understand that primarily as a matter of how we are disposed psychologically to think, feel, and act morally. So it has three central components to it, a cognitive component, a thinking component, a more affective or motivational or feeling component to it, and then an outward behavioral component. Uh, and it's, that's, that's kind of the abstract characterization. To make it a little bit more concrete, you already uh, alluded to virtue. So character, moral character comes in different uh, varieties. There's moral virtue, there's moral vice, and maybe there's everything in the middle between those two. Uh, but let's start with the, the virtues. So, you know, these should be pretty familiar things like honesty, compassion, justice, courage, generosity, gratitude, uh, and they meet that definition. 
Uh, so something like honesty, well, an honest person thinks a certain way, thinks it's important to tell the truth, for example, um, has certain motivations, so is motivated to not cheat, for example. And then those thoughts and feelings give outward, are outwardly expressed in the right kind of circumstances, say in the courtroom or at the party um, or when talking to the significant other, in terms of honest behavior. So we get that same trifold pattern with a virtue like honesty. And we can turn it around, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop here a second, to, sorry not to go on too long, but um, we can turn it around and flip it around just with vices as well. So another kind of moral character are the, uh, is the vices, or the vices uh, are particular character traits that, of course, are the negative ones. Um, they are intrinsically bad character traits, but they stay, still have the same profile. So a dishonest person has certain kind of dishonest thoughts, feelings, and behavior, um, unfortunately, of course, the vices are oriented in a bad direction, and so we, we want to you know, move away from the vices if we have them in our character, and we want to try and cultivate the virtues, which are intrinsically good. Um, but both are the kind of leading kinds of character traits. So we're sitting here in 20, 2021 uh, talking about character. Um, I'm pretty sure there's somebody in the world no matter how, how bad we are, who is also thinking about character. And I, and I, and I wonder, what is it about character? Um, do you think that has, that has made us as, as, as human beings throughout time interested in either cultivating it or at least pretending that we are cultivating it? Yeah. What is it about this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's a really hard question too. I mean, first of all, it's character is something that's just not, it's not a recent development. I mean, it goes right back to the earliest philosophers in the West. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle were uh, spent a great deal of time talking about character. And the same thing is true in Eastern philosophy. For example, Confucius and the Confucian tradition cares a lot about character as well. So there's this long, long tradition of thinking about this and thinking it's really important and that the least the good side is worth cultivating and the bad side is worth avoiding. I think there are I, I don't know if I can give it a complete answer, but I think at least a couple things come to mind. Um, what, one is that you know the good character traits, the virtues, I think they're, they're, they're intrinsically good. So they're good in and of themselves. Um, so they are, they are excellences that we should try to cultivate. Uh, but they're also instrumentally good. So they're good as a means to other things. Uh, one way they are instrumentally good is to contribute to a flourishing society. Um, so they make society better off. If you compare an honest society to a dishonest society or a just society to an unjust society, well, um, I think I know which, which of those I would rather have in my society. Um, so they, they make uh, uh, the world around us and different societies better. But I'll, the last thing I'll mention is I think they're also instrumentally good for us as individuals so that they can benefit me and you individually. And this is not just me like, you know, hoping that's true. There's actually some empirical data to back that up. So different virtues have been linked in different studies to good outcomes like um, better achievements, uh, better academic performance, better mood, longer lifespan, better health, um, even things like increased earnings potential. So I wouldn't want to focus on that too much because it makes, I think, the virtues too crudely instrumental to self-interest. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't want to make that the whole story. But I think it's still worth noting that, look, this is not just something that um, we should care about in some esoteric abstract sense. It actually could make my life go better to have a virtuous character. Let's go back to kind of the, the nature of character a little bit, particularly for for some uh, character points to kind of the stable kind of kind of nature in us. Or and and I, and I wonder, what do you say to to work in more psychology that suggests that this stable, consistent notion of character is a myth? Um, and I think there's a you know popular study suggests that something about our environment that makes us you know exercise these virtues that you that you're referring to. There's nothing within within ourselves. And I, and I wonder, are you convinced of this? Um, of this data, does this make character less or more possible for you? Yeah, that's, these are great questions and, and, and challenging ones. Um, 
let me give a little context here. So when I was talking about what character is, I didn't emphasize two features that I really should have emphasized. One is uh, that you, you brought out in your question. One is stability and the other is consistency. Uh, so something like honesty is supposed to be a stable character trait over time. What does that mean? Well, if you're honest, you're not just honest today, you're honest today and tomorrow, the next day, the next week, next month, next year. So that it has that cross-temporal aspect. Consistency too, though. And here consistency means consistency across situations. So an honest person isn't just expected to be honest in the courtroom and never anywhere else. The honest person is expected to be, of course, honest in the courtroom, but also at the office, at the party, at home, at you know all the other contexts where honesty might come into play. So those are two other important features to highlight of character traits. Now, what about this recent discussion in the philosophy literature? So let me give some, some background for listeners who may not be uh, familiar with this. There's been a recent discussion that by recent, I mean in the last 20 years, that uh, has drawn on empirical evidence from social and personality psychology and asked the question, is there any real data to back up the existence of these character traits? I mean, we've believed in them for a long time, like we've already talked about, uh, and people hope that they exist, but is there any real concrete evidence of their existence? And on one side, there are a couple of philosophers, especially Gilbert Harmon, who teaches at Princeton, and John Doris, who just uh, moved to Cornell, um, who have been skeptical. They say, look, when you look at the, the best empirical evidence in psychology, you don't see much evidence for character traits. And see, in fact, you see a lot of evidence against them. Now, let me refine that a little bit, um, and then I'll tell you what I, my personal belief is. So they don't challenge whether character is stable over time. What they challenge is whether it's consistent across situations. Um, so they are fine with saying that someone could have honesty just in the courtroom. But they are skeptical that people have honesty, period, which mm. would be courtroom, party, office, home, and so forth. And why are they skeptical? Well, because they see a lot of these studies which suggest that our behavior is very sensitive to the situation and environment, like you were alluding to, um, that small changes in the environment could lead to quite disparate behavior, di different, different manifestations of behavior. So in one situation, a person could help, and you vary that situation slightly, and the person may not help anymore, or vice versa. And the variations are not things like um, someone's in need of help and so, or someone is not in need of help. It's more like, uh, how is the temperature in the room? Or um, how many people are around? Um, or how loud is the noise level? Or are there some pleasant smells in the environment? These more trivial, not so important, morally speaking, factors turn out to have a significant impact on behavior. So if uh, something like, uh, if there's a pleasant smell, that could lead people to help a lot more than if there's not a pleasant smell. Well, if you have the virtues, it shouldn't work that way. Um, a compassionate person shouldn't have his or her compassion vary based upon the smell in the room. A compassionate person should be sensitive to the important factors, the considerations like, does this person need help or not? Regardless of whether the room smells nice or doesn't smell nice. Um, so that's the that's how I think I would frame the, the discussion. I'm, um, I'm actually quite sympathetic to their view. So um, to some extent. Um, I also, uh, with them, agree that virtue is rare. Um, so they, they think that, um, they don't think that it's impossible, it's just rare. Few people have the moral virtues. Um, that, uh, I think, is a reasonable con conclusion to draw from the empirical literature. I think it's also a reasonable conclusion to draw from other sources of evidence, like the you know, nightly news, um, <laughs> you know, human history. Um, Aristotle, interestingly, had the same view, too. Um, so I think there, there's a lot of uh, room for agreement here. 
the one last thing I'll add, though, um, uh, and this gets into the weeds a little bit, but um, just to to throw one more thing about my own position out there, I'm actually uh, thinking that most people fall in a middle space between virtue and vice, um, and that that middle space is pretty consistent. Um, so we, we it's what I call having a mixed character. Um, so we have a character which is not good enough to count as virtuous, but not bad enough to count as vicious. Most of us have this kind of character, I think. Um, and it's pretty consistent across different situations. Um, so we're pretty much a mixed bag as we go from situation to situation. Um, and I can elaborate that more. Maybe we'll, future questions will, will take us there. Um, so I'm okay with saying, like Doris and Harmon, that virtue is rare. But I want to go on and say as well that character really does exist. It is still important. It's just not as good as it needs to be. Okay, this is interesting, right? So, 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 so let's let's let's, let's try to figure out if I am, <laughs> if I have character or not. So, so are you saying that, say, for instance, um, um, is the mix, uh, the mixed ground, the mixed territory, is that me saying, hey, I'm courageous mm, when it comes to? I'm trying to figure out something I can be courageous about uh, when it comes to war. <laughs> But I'm not courageous uh, when it comes to walking in a certain kind of neighborhood. And every time I go to war, I mean, this is a horrible example. But are you saying that 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 contextual thing, um, mm-hmm. I can be consistent in that, even if it doesn't, um, even if it doesn't cross situations? Do you think that's that's just who we are in general? Yeah, yeah, good. Yep, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yep, yep, yep. So um, here's a here's an example to illustrate it, um, and I'll use a study uh, as well to back it up. Um, the, I think it's a, it's a cool example, so I think it ties into a number of points that we've already touched on. Uh, so in the, in the 1990s, a psychologist named Robert Barron was looking at helping behavior in shopping malls. Uh, and it, he found uh, in a control study, I mean, a, the control group in his study uh, were shoppers who were passing by clothing stores. And then as they passed by the store, they were each approached individually and given an opportunity to help perform some simple helping task. Um, it turns out that very few of those shoppers helped. Uh, and it was less than 20%. The other group that he was interested in were people who had passed by Mrs. Fields cookies or Cinnabons. Uh, to the same shopping mall, same day, uh, but that's the relevant environmental difference. And after they passed by those one of those stores, they were approached and asked to perform the same helping task. So that, that didn't change either. Well, suddenly helping, uh, when you look at the results, helping goes way up. Uh, it was in the, in, amongst, I can't remember the, the exact numbers, but I think in the female participants, 17% in the controls helped, 61% in the, the Mrs. Fields cookies condition helped amongst the female participants. I can't remember the male participant breakdown. Um, that's a huge disparity. You don't see those, that, those kind of gaps very often in psychology. Well, where is this going? Now, let's take it a step further. Well, why? What, what was the impact of Mrs. Fields' cookies? It was the smell. Um, the smell coming from those, and I, I'm sure you, you know, you've been there. I, I've been there. We know what that's like. Um, you, you know, around here, it would be more donuts because um, we're, we're Krispy Kreme's capital of the world. Um, uh, so, you know, same kind of point. That smell put people in a good mood and then they were motivated to maintain their good mood. And along came a helping opportunity, which provided them with the opportunity to maintain their good mood. So uh, how does this now factor into mixed character? Well, on the one hand, this, these people were helping. That's great. Um, you know, we, we want them to help as opposed to not help. On the other hand, they weren't helping for very good reasons. Um, their motivation to help was self-interested. It was to maintain a good mood. Um, third, so that's that's two points. So it's not good enough to be virtuous because you don't get virtuous motivation here. But the behavior is good, so it's not vicious either. Um, the last point now, this is cross-situational. So you can expect that in a lot of different situations, when people are in a good mood, they're going to be much more likely to help than when they're not. 
because why? They have a motivation to maintain their good mood. So you do get cross-situational consistency. That have to be the shopping mall. It could be you know lots of other situations, um, but you don't see virtuous uh, the pattern of virtue that I would expect of a virtuous person. So I say this is a consistent character, uh, you know, aspect of our consistent character. Um, that's a mixed bag. It, it seems that you think that we are not as good as we think we are, mm-hmm. and you refer to this as the character gap. Yep. Tell us more about this gap because I'm not feeling too good about myself right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I know this. This often happens in these kind of discussions. It gets a little depressing. I'm sorry. There's a there's some good news here. Um, so so the 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 my, my most recent book was called The Character Gap. And by that, I mean just the gap between the character we should have and the character we tend to actually have. Uh, So the character we should have is a virtuous character that has the virtues, like we talked about, honesty, compassion, and the the rest of them. The actual character we have is what we've also just been talking about, that mixed character. Now, how is that? How can I spin that in a more positive direction? Well, let me do so in two ways. Um, one is, I say, it's most people have this mixed character. I don't say all people. I think okay. there's something, something of a you know, kind of bell-shaped curve here where most people are in the middle, this kind of murky middle of their character. But I think there are outliers on each end. Um, there are some really, really good people, some virtuous people. We can pick different you know, exemplars if we want to. We can pick Harry Tubman. We can pick Abraham Lincoln. We can pick Gandhi. We can pick um, Confucius, whatever, whatever one we want to talk about. And then, of course, there are ones on the, you know, unfortunately, on the other side, your Hitlers and your Stalins and and that company. Um, So, you know, clearly you're uh, on one side. um, And I should clarify, of course, the virtuous side. So that could make you feel better about yourself. Um, So it's not everyone I'm saying is has a mixed character. Um, There there are virtuous people like you um, who are exceptions. Um, And also, um, I'm not saying we're vicious. So that's really important to emphasize. Uh, I said we said most of us don't have the virtues. Um, now, some philosophers like this, the Stoics, for example, some of the Stoics would have gone right from lack of virtue to vice. Bam. Um, I, don't, I think it's a mistake. I don't think we should do that. And so the good news here, the second piece of good news is um, most of us don't have the, the vices. That's great. Most of us are not dishonest. Most of us are not cruel. Most of us are not cowardly. Um, So it's half glass, half full glass, half empty situation here. So we can definitely emphasize that side of it. So what are, what are some strategies? Now we we talked about how the character gap is, you know, kind of different between, you know, who you think you are, who you actually are, but what are there some strategies for closing the gap? Yeah, um, and that also I think is a, a a way to make us feel better um, because there are strategies to improve. Um, it would be really depressing if I said, you know, we have this murky middle ground character. Um, this is just the way we are. It's fixed. There's nothing you can do about it. And see you later. You know, have a good weekend or something like that. Have a good rest of the night. Um, that would that would be demoralizing to me. Uh, but the good news is. Even if we have this mixed bag character, um, we can make slow, gradual progress over time. In, of, of course, though, in either direction, in a good direction or a bad direction. So it's really important, I think, to, to um, try to outline or specify some strategies for growing in virtue and thereby shrinking the character gap. Now, um, what are they? Well, in the book, I talk about some strategies, first of all, that I don't think are very promising. Um, so I'll set those to to one side, and then I go on and focus on several strategies which I do think show some promise, although they need to be experimentally tested a lot more. So I'm I'm really you know big on philosophy, but also on empirical research too, and I'm leery of any strategy that doesn't have a lot of um, data to back it up. So let me you know introduce that caveat. Okay, now um, in the interest of time, I'll just just give you two that um, to, to highlight and and mention that there are others as well. One um, strategy has to do with exemplars. Uh, so it's um, seeking out and finding 
virtuous exemplars, saints, heroes, um, the best of the best, learning from them, and hopefully reshaping one's own character to better correspond to theirs. Um, now that's pretty abstract, so let me try to make it a little bit more concrete. You know, um, I think it would start, one way to think about this, it starts by with self-examination. You know, where am I doing okay with my, as far as uh, uh, being a moral person, and where do I really fall short? Um, well, maybe I, you know, I think about it and I think, reflect over the last year and areas where I've really struggled morally. And okay, so I, I could really use some, some help with my courage. Um, where are there exemplars of courage, people who have, have, whose courage shines forth in their lives? Uh, and here we can go in different directions. We can go into fiction and look at some fictional exemplars. We can go to history and we could, you know, think about people like Harry Tubman. Um, or we can go current if there are people in our lives. It doesn't have to be, you know, really prominent, uh, famous people. It could be a neighbor, a coworker, uh, a friend, a family member. But when we look at that person's life, we might admire them for their, their courage, and that could have a subsequent emotional impact on us of inspiring us to be more like them. Mm-hmm. So it's not just intellectual, it's not just philosophical, it's actually deeply emotional that I want my character in this area to better reflect that other person's character, not drag their character down to my level, but elevate my character to their uh, up to up to that person's level. Okay, so that's that's one strategy, and we can say a lot more about that. But um, the other one I'll mention briefly is uh, m- having consistent more reminders in our lives. Uh, so it turns out I think that most of us know what the right thing to do is morally speaking. Um, it's not that we're just ignorant of you know whether cheating is right or wrong or lying is right or wrong. Uh, we know those things, but we also have competing um, values and competing interests going on that sometimes uh, take our focus away from what's morally right. Uh, so, we're, and it leads us into forms of temptation. Uh, well, what moral reminders can do is get our perspective back to where it needs to be. Uh, and so these can be, they can take lots of different forms. They could be things like starting your day with a particular reading um, it could be at the end of the day, journaling or doing a diary, f- reflecting back on the day. Uh, it could be getting certain text messages or emails sent to you during the day uh, as things that you put up on your wall in your office. Um, one thing I've spent a lot of time researching and writing about is honor codes um, mm-hmm. in the academic environment. Uh, you know, for, for us, it, thinking about cheating with our students um, and the role of honor codes as more reminders to prevent people from cheating and get their perspective where it needs to be. So all those things are concrete illustrations of a second strategy, namely having these tangible, consistent moral reminders in our lives to keep our perspective where it needs to be. Okay, sorry. That was a long long answer, but um, the two strategies. No, I, I like them. I like them. I mean, as you were talking about exemplars, I mean, I'm really tempted to answer this question, ask this question and I'm, and I'm going to ask it because I'm, I'm thinking about the era that we're living in, in which uh, there used to be, it used to be an era. I mean, there's a hashtag called no heroes, right? Because right. I think what a lot of people are finding now is that people that they have greatly admired, um, when the details have been revealed, what they admired them about wasn't actually a virtue, right? People are mm-hmm. discovering basically that people are not as excellent as we, as we thought, as we thought they were. Mm-hmm. And, and let's just put, let's put, let's put legal things to the side. So let's put uh, acts of illegality to the side and let's just talk about just immoral behavior that people are finding out, you know, Hey, I admire this historical figure and kind of find out they were racist. And, and I mm-hmm. wonder if, you know, I, I, I wonder what would you, what you say? Cause I, I want to take, I want to take a disappointment seriously. Right. I mean, we, we try to explain it away by asking questions about canceling. But I think if exemplars are as important as you suggest that they are, I can imagine what this does to our psyche and, and our optimism about, about virtue and about character and about living a good life. And so, and so given what you've said so far, I wonder what would you say to individuals who have had exemplars and have discovered that they were not as excellent as they thought that they were? What would you say to those people? Yeah. Yeah, that's really tough. I mean, I, I, I would want to be very sensitive and careful what I said. Um, 
you know, and I would want to know who the exemplar was and where they fell short. Um, so I, I would I would be hesitant to say anything general. I I would really want to know the facts of the on the ground and the and specific details of the situation. But let me at least make a general point along the following lines. Um, it, I think it's really important to not overpromise with this exemplar strategy um, mm-hmm. because any exemplar at best is going to be an exemplar in one or two areas of his or her character. Uh, there's never been, unless we want to get into theological discussions, you know, maybe another time, um, there's never been a perfectly virtuous person, you know, throughout history. Um, so, you know, take any exemplar you think of, there are going to be some real concerning areas. Um, you know, my the, the Character Gap book, uh, on the cover, Oxford had designed this really interesting cover for me, and they put um, Gandhi at the top and they put Hitler at the bottom. And then they had this kind of, you know, spectrum between them. And I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, not about Hitler, but about Gandhi. Right, and right. say, you know, why, why did you put him up at the top? You know, what about this, you know, X, Y, and Z? Um, you know, he really shouldn't be up there as an exemplar. And, you know, I, so I say the same thing I've already said, which is, yes, there are some worrisome areas, but I'm thinking of him as an exemplar in this one respect. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln not saying it was perfect in every respect, but f- with respect to honesty, that seems pretty solid. Um, you know, Harry Tubman, I don't know about in every respect, but it's, when it comes to courage, I, yeah, I certainly, uh, there are not many people who are more courageous than she was. Um, so that's what I would, I would really say. Don't expect um, the unity of the virtues thesis to hold. So th- by, by way of background, that's, um, that's the view that we owe to Aristotle, that if you have one virtue, you must have all the virtues. Uh, I think that's, like most philosophers, I think that's that's clearly false. Uh, and at best, you're going to find one or a couple of virtues clustered together in someone's character, but don't expect them to be um, saints across the board. So you mentioned honest age. So let's talk about honesty, because that's clearly, <laughs> you know, what, you, <laughs> what yeah, you're working yeah. on. If, 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 if you were to ask anyone if, if honesty is a good trait, the character trait, they would say yes if they're being honest. But um, um, but yeah, why do you think, <laughs> given that, why why do you think then that that honesty is, you know, according to you, a neglected virtue? So this this is you're right to say this is what I'm working on now. So I was working on the kind of general issues about character for many many years, and I kind of said what I wanted to say in the academic context, and I said what I wanted to say in a with a trade book, the character gap, and then I kind of got tired of saying it. Um, so I, I wanted to do something else, and I was casting around for something to do, not like completely changing gears, something broadly in the same area. And I realized that there are certain virtues that are neglected and have just not been paid attention to much. Honesty is one. Um, generosity is another. And this is, this is quite stunning. Now, in what sense are they neglected? Well, I mean, it, clearly people are aware of them and people are familiar with them. And they think they're important uh, and they're, they're good to cultivate. So they're not neglected in that sense. So I mean, in the context of academic research, um, it's stunning how little has been said about generosity, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll set that to the side, and about honesty. Um, you would think that of all the different virtues, this would be one where philosophers would have really uh, you know, devoted a lot of attention to. But uh, the number of papers on modesty uh, is something like 20 times more papers on modesty than there is on honesty. Um, if you know, you know, figure figure that one out. Um, now, we, that invites the question: Why? Um, and I don't have a great answer to that. Uh, I think some of it is is not rational um, in the sense that it's just there there are trends and there are fads, and s- some things are cool to talk about, and other things just people don't pay attention to. Um, and so Julia Driver wrote a really controversial article on modesty. And because of that, people read the article and said, oh, that can't be right. I'm going to give my own view and I'm going to give my own view. I'm going to give my own views. You know, that we're going to sort this out. Um, and so that kind of generated a little industry in philosophy on that virtue. Well, no one, for whatever reason, did the same thing with honesty. And so it got neglected for, for decades. Uh, no, no article uh, in a mainstream philosophy journal on what is the virtue of honesty in 50 years. Mm. Um, 
So I'm trying to, to do something about that. And so we have an honesty project and I've got a book coming out uh, this year on honesty and really trying to turn the tide and, and get people paying attention to it. I think it's really, of course, important, but also nuanced and complicated and fascinating virtue. Mm. So we tend to praise people who can say it like it is. And I, and I think for lots of people, this is, this is a, a, a trait that, pe- that people admired in our, in our former president. But, but I wonder this notion of saying it like it is, is that what honesty is, is about? And, and how can we ensure, and this is you know, kind of one of my worries in relationship to this, to this question and this thinking, is how can we ensure that we develop a virtue of honesty? And that, and that the vice of, of honesty, I don't even know we want to call it the vice of honesty, it's something else. Yeah, that's, that's, that last one's very, very tough. I don't know if I'm going to have anything um, to say about that that's um, helpful. But so saying it like it is, I think that's a key part of it. Um, but I would want to go broader in scope and also introduce one modification. So the first, the modification, uh, I think it's saying it like you think it is, mm. um, is honesty, not necessarily saying it like it really is. What do I mean by that? Well, you could you could actually be mistaken, radically mistaken about something, and still be an honest person. Uh, so, you, for example, you could think the Earth is flat, and genuinely believe that. And then, you know, someone asks you what's the shape of the Earth, and you say the Earth is flat. You're being honest, um, even though your belief is false and you know significantly false. Um, so, it, why are you still honest? Because you're not distorting the facts as you see them. You're saying it like it is as you see it. So, so I go subjective there as opposed to objective. Honesty does not have to track the truth. Uh, you know, if we, if we think there's objective truth, um, doesn't, have to, doesn't have to track the objective truth. It's enough for it to track the subjective truth. Um, now, having said that, so that's maybe just a, a small quibble or, you know, a small modification. Um, I also think it's uh, tricky because Honesty is broad in scope. Uh, it covers a lot of moral territory. Uh, not everyone agrees with me about this. I get some, even from my team members here at Wake Forest, I get some pushback on this. But um, so what, what, what you were proposing, I think, works really well for the part of honesty that pertains to lying. Um, so, you know, covers matters of lying and maybe also covers matters of misleading. But honesty, I think, also has to do with things like cheating um, stealing, uh, promise keeping and promise breaking, um, self-deception, uh, uh, bullshit. Um, I hope I'm allowed to say that, um, you know, lots lots of other things. Um, and, uh, and so then I think we need to, we'll need to do more, um, because saying it like it is won't extend naturally say to cheating or not cheating. Or stealing and not not stealing. Um, so the way I go here is I, I kind of take that your your insight there and just maybe uh, uh, generalize it a bit um, to to something like this: um, an honest person in their behavior is concerned centrally with not intentionally distorting the facts as they see them. Um, so I'll say it again: the honest person is concerned with not intentionally distorting the facts as they see them. So thereby they don't lie, they don't steal, they don't cheat, they don't break promises, and they don't mislead. Um, now, there's a lot more to say there, and I tried to, you know, this is this is brand new stuff for me that I'm trying to work out, and the book is supposed to be my, my first attempt to, to get this spelled out. Um, the, the other thing you were saying was, uh, how can we kind of, check ourselves and make sure we're progressing in the right direction towards honesty and not towards the opposite, which would be dishonesty. Um, Well, I think we could use that notion of uh, not intentionally distorting the facts to help us here. So, you know, um, when I'm uh, talking to others, am I accurately representing the world as I see it to them? Or am I distorting the picture? Uh, so, you know, an example here would be, um, you know, someone comes home from the bar. Uh, well, someone's out at the bar the night before. Um, the significant other asks, where were you? The person says, I was at the bar. 
and they conveniently and on purpose leave out the rest of the story of where they were after the bar. So that person should, if they're honest, present the facts as they understand them completely to the significant other. So I was at the bar and then I went home with so-and-so, or then I went to the casino or whatever. Um, so that's a way to check against the behavior. Did you give a, uh, an accurate presentation of the facts as you saw them, or are you distorting them or misrepresenting them or biasing them in a certain way to benefit yourself? Um, that's that's the least I, the best I can come up with um, to that to to that very very hard question. And we mentioned uh, when we were talking about character, we mentioned um, the importance of more exemplos, which is basically pointing to this notion that hey, it's other people. You know, people can make us or help us uh, become more, more more virtuous, or at least help us close the gap. And I wonder what role do people play when it comes to honesty? So can people make us more honest? And yeah. if so how? Yeah, yeah. So you've already. Um, you already kind of helped me answer that with, with one, in one direction. Um, you know, the, the exemplar story we talked about earlier would carry over naturally here. Uh, so there are going to be exemplars of honesty. And we've already mentioned Honest Abe, um, who we can be inspired by and look to as role models and try to uh, have our, this area of our character better represent their, um, their character. But we've already spoken about that. So are there other ways in which people can help us grow in honesty? There's a, a one way where having other people around can just make it harder to be dishonest. So when there are eyes watching, and that those could be literal human eyes, but they could even just be eyes up on a sign on a wall, because there are studies that have found this too. Um, when there are eyes watching, we're much, it's much harder for us to engage in dishonest behavior. But that's not the same thing as actually growing in honesty. That's just not doing dishonest behavior. So, so the last thing I'll mention is uh, a, a very um, kind of tangible, practical aspect of this could be having accountability partners um, who can help us grow in honesty. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, people to whom one is willing to share struggles of, say, cheating and those can take, the cheating could take, you know, various forms. It could be relationship cheating. It could be um, financial cheating, whatever, um, or stealing or other things like this. Uh, being willing to share that to another person, open yourself up to that person, make yourself vulnerable to that person. Uh, that, that, that alone already is, is a good thing, I think, and, and, and can, be, can be character building. But then have that other person not in a... Um, kind of uh, guilt, um, like, you know, looking over your shoulder, making your life uncomfortable, but have that other person serve as an accountability partner, helping me or you uh, to try to live up to what it is to be an honest person. Um, so, you know, check in, that other person could check in, that other person could provide a reminder, um, that other person could share his or her own struggles too, and help me appreciate that I'm not the only one struggling with this, that this other person is struggling too. So that's a, a third example. First was exemplars. Second was other people preventing us from doing dishonest actions. And then third, having a person or persons in one's life who one's really trusts, serving as a kind of accountability partner here in this area. So we, we talked about the book, Character Gap. We, you indicated that you're currently writing a book on, on honesty. And so that, that leads me to think, if, if you're writing books, well, we need to, we, I, I want to know about your process. Um, and, and I think there's a tendency, and I, I really like to talk to, to, to a lot of academics. Uh, and I think, I think we, we have a tendency to kind of mystify. I not only see this in academia, but I also see this in, in fiction world as well. When, when we think about writers, have a tendency to kind of mystify the, the, the writing practice. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm curious to know, what is your, your, your writing routine? Um, how do you make time for writing? Um, is it something that you, since we talk about character and consistency, is it something that you do consistently? Um, yeah, what is, yeah. What is that like? I wish I had it. I wish it, it, it was like that. Um, you know, it, uh, it, it, and the sad fact is it's, it's a mess. Really, it's varied by stages in my life. So when I was in graduate school, I was single and I didn't have much 
social life. So of my own choosing, I think probably. Um, so I was I would write and research pretty much seven days a week, ten plus hours a day. Um, I was you know kind of just just living in the library. That that carried over to when I was tenure track here at Wake Forest and starting out my career. Then I uh, I got married, which. Uh, helped me get out of that lifestyle, that earlier lifestyle. Um, and that changed my writing routine such that now writing was concentrated during the daytime hours and then trying to preserve nights and weekends for having a you know, relationship and making sure that I kept the relationship. And then, uh, but then fast forward a little bit later, um, kids come along. So we have three young kids right now and any routine is kind of out the window, um, I found. Uh, it's, it's just so hard to have a consistent writing routine. So now what I do is I have, uh, uh, you know, during the day, during when, when they're in school, I try I do my, my class prep. I uh, answer email. I work on these, these grants I have to, to manage, um, do review articles and books for publishers, all that kind of other stuff. And I try to save the night the nighttime for the actual writing. So about 8 p.m. to 12 p.m. is uh, trying six or so nights a week um, is when I get get the writing done. Did you did you have a hard time uh, adjusting? I mean, one, one might say that with family, you know, there was a, there was a sacrifice of sorts, right? Um, and I and I have a, a itchy suspicion, particularly for uh, that if you had such a productive, and I'm not going to say productive, like a consistent writing time, and uh, was it was it was it difficult to transition to, to kind of a, a new life of sorts, or was it was it some kind of relief for you? What was that like? Yeah, yeah, it, it, um, that's a great question. It it was difficult to transition in the sense of well, it 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 like character became habitual. What I was doing before it was routine. It was kind of second nature. So like all habits, you can't break them with the snap of the finger. It's a flip of a switch. Uh, they have to gradually be eroded as well as built up. But at the same time, I really tried to focus on the positive of, look, these are my kids. Um, they matter so much more than some philosophy article that I'm writing. Um, so they're, they're, you know, I love them more. Um, they're more special to me, um, and and or, you know, I, I mean, as as they should be. It's kind of, I didn't, you know, be strange if I didn't say that. I really worry about my character then. Um, so so and you know, the the key thing is that they're only going to be kids for so long. They're only going to be uh, playing with their their Legos for so long, um, and we, we have a chance to build things with Legos, and we're only going to have a chance to read these you know really fun books for so long, and they're gonna, they're going to grow up. Um, and I don't want to look back and say, wow, I got a lot of papers written, but I missed all this time with my kids. Um, that, that would really be, that thought would be really crushing to me. Um, so it turns out that, no, I, I, I really don't have many regrets. You know, it, it's tough physically sometimes just to, just the hours to make all this work out. And it's, it's a struggle to, you know, balance everything, but um, no regrets at all prioritizing family over the writing. As researchers in the humanities, we often are content with grabbing our books, going into our libraries like you used to do, and write alone. Um, but as you've indicated throughout this conversation, I mean, you're presently and, and have been a director of, of several funded projects. And I, I wonder how important are these collaborative and, and communal projects for, are for you in thinking through your ideas? And what benefits do you think they provide that working individually in the library does not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, if you asked me that in graduate school, I would have said, I, I, you know, I, I don't think they did. They would have provided any benefit. You know, when I was in graduate school, I was doing kind of more pure philosophy, conceptual stuff. Just all I needed was my books and articles and my computer, and I could just kind of crank it out. Over time, though, my interest changed. And I got really interested in a lot of what we talked about today at issues that are not just purely armchair, you know, reflective conceptual issues in philosophy, but also just topics that have an empirical side to them, um, that have data that, that can be brought in, that can be tested. So I didn't want to think just about what the definition of virtue is, but I want to think about does virtue actually exist today? Uh, I didn't want to think about... Um, you know, why is it important to cultivate virtue? I want to think about 
concretely, how can we practically cultivate virtue? And so for, for some of these questions, you just can't answer them from the armchair, the proverbial philosophical armchair. You need to gather data and learn other disciplines and you know, uh, tap into the wisdom of people doing stuff in other areas of academia. And so now to, to more specifically address this, um, for the last 12 years, we've had a team together of psychologists here at Wake Forest and myself and some philosophers where we're doing exactly that. And it's been eye-opening for me and extremely beneficial and interesting. And what it's done is uh, helped me become much better equipped to talk about those empirical sides of these discussions of character. So you know, I already had the background on the philosophical side, but I could, I, I maybe I could have gotten a lot of it on my own. But it's you know having those experts who are kind to me and friendly and willing to patiently explain things and go over it for me so that I understand uh, has has really um, been a, been an incredible blessing. I'm, I'm very very grateful for it. Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me. I really I really learned a lot. I'm inspired too. Um, but I also feel less pressure, less expectation on myself concerning character. Um, challenge to be a little bit more honest. But, but thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot. No, oh, it's really great. Really a lot of fun. I, you know, it's only nine thirty here at, at night. So if you, if you want, if you want to go to midnight, we can. But um, no, I really, really enjoyed being on your show. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me in the first place. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.